Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 148 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Before we get into this week's episode, we wanted to remind you about our newsletter, where you can get updates about our work and the things that are going on at Theopolis. If you head to our website, theopolisinstitute.com, head to Resources and Newsletter, you can sign up right there. In this episode of the podcast, Peter Lightheart is going to discuss the lectionary text for June 10th, which is the third Sunday after Pentecost, or the third Sunday in the Trinity season. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by these observations on these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Brian Motes. Alistair Roberts, who is a regular guest on our podcast, is once again not with us, just like he wasn't last week. But last week was actually just a few minutes ago, because we record two episodes at a time. So I'm going to pretend like it was last week, but uh, I've just let you in on the secret. Uh, We're talking about the uh, lectionary readings for June 10th. That's the third Sunday after Pentecost, the third Sunday of the Trinity season in 2018. Uh, And the readings for this coming Sunday for June 10th are Genesis 3, verses 8 through 15, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 13 through uh, the beginning of chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 1, continuing uh, with the section of 2 Corinthians that we discussed last last time, and then Mark 3, the end of Mark 3, uh, which again is a continuation of uh, the portion of Mark that we were talking about in the last episode. Uh, these uh, readings are not as clearly linked as the ones we discussed last week. Uh, they're um, last, uh, the, the readings for uh, the second Sunday after Pentecost were organized around the theme of Sabbath, particularly the Old Testament reading and the Gospel reading. And uh, these readings are seem to me more disparate. I don't, I, I haven't been able to discern a, a unity uh, a unifying theme. You can see how you can you can make them work together, but uh, it's not as clearly a unified theme. Uh, Genesis three is kind of a random reading uh, in the Old Testament uh, uh, in the uh, lectionary. Uh, it uh, it's not in a sequence with anything else. The the surrounding readings for this uh, this cycle are Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Job, Lamentations, back to Ezekiel, Amos, Jeremiah, and then back to Genesis in the uh, Twelfth uh, or the tenth Sunday after Pentecost, um, but this is the section of Genesis three that describes the Lord's confrontation of Adam and Eve after their sin. Uh, they have eaten the forbidden fruit. They, their eyes have been opened as the serpent had told them what happened. They realize that they're naked, and so they sew fig leaves together uh, in order to cover themselves and to cover their shame. Uh, and the reading picks up in Genesis three eight when they hear the the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in what my Bible calls the, the cool of the day. Meredith Klein, many years ago, I think it's in Images of the Spirit, Meredith Klein uh, uh, pointed out that the word there for cool is the word for wind or breath. It's ruach in the Hebrew. It's the spirit. Uh, the Lord is coming into the garden in the spirit of the day. Uh, and uh, contrary to the kind of sentimental image that many people have of this, this is not a... Uh, this is not a, we shouldn't think of this as the Lord uh, kind of quietly uh, uh, walking through the garden, 
uh, tiptoeing through the garden, tiptoeing through the tulips in order to meet Adam and Eve. If the Lord comes in the spirit, the Lord comes with a great noise. This is a, this is a great wind. This is the Lord of the storm coming. Uh, the Lord is coming. Uh, this is uh, in a, a Sabbath setting. Jim Jordan has pointed out that uh, Genesis 2 is tracking along with Genesis 1. Genesis 2 and 3 are set up in a sequence of seven sections, and the fall scene falls in the seventh slot. It's a Sabbath scene. Just as the end of chapter 2, the creation of Eve falls in the sixth day slot, matching up with the creation of man uh, in uh, Genesis 1. The Sabbath day at the beginning of Genesis 2 matches up with Genesis 3, which is a fall scene, but it's a Sabbath scene because it's uh, the scene about the Lord's coming in judgment. Um, the Sabbath is not only a time when uh, the Lord takes his rest, but it's also a time when he takes his throne uh, and he passes judgment. So um, if you want to get a better picture or a better audible image of what's happening in Genesis 3 when the Lord comes in the spirit of the day, uh, think of the day of Pentecost, the rushing mighty wind of Pentecost, or think of the Lord coming at Sinai with the a sound of lightning, a sound of thunder, the lightning flashes, the trumpet that is so ear-splitting that Israel wants the Lord to to to, to quiet down. That's the that's the scene that we have. The Lord is rushing into the garden in order to call Adam and Eve to judgment, call in order to call them to account. Not surprisingly, they hide when they hear this sound of the spirit of the day, the spirit of judgment day coming. Uh, they've already covered themselves with fig leaves, but that's not good enough. They go hide. They hide from the presence of God, and uh, they don't want to face this judgment. Um, they feel shame in the presence of God. They recoil from the presence of God. Um, uh, uh, Cayuchi, in a uh, eccentric but uh, fascinating commentary on Leviticus, talks about this passage as embodying kind of the essence of of sin. He talks about sin as a matter of hiding, self hiding. Um, uh, that's, um, that comes up very prominently here, and, and Cayuchi thinks that this is uh, an important part of the uh, Levitical system, that uh, Leviticus is about uh, removing, stripping, kind of stripping away the fig leaves, uh, our own efforts to hide our shame, and accepting the Lord's uh, provision to hide our shame. Um, but they're uh, recoiling from the presence of God, and um, uh, they're... Uh, uh, hiding among the trees, and uh, the Lord calls them to account, calls them out, asks them how they knew that uh, they were naked, and they confess, sort of confess, that uh, they uh, had uh, eaten from the tree. Of course, Adam confesses by uh, blaming Eve. Adam confesses by making a scapegoat of his wife. Um, good trick there, guys, if you're looking for a trick to escape responsibility for something. You can always blame your wife for it. Uh, it's a pretty common trick, but it's uh, still effective in a lot of ways. Uh, the Lord sees right through that trick. Uh, he uh, recognizes that there's a, that uh, Adam has blamed his wife. Eve uh, blames the serpent, but she says something that uh, Paul will later tell us is actually true, that Eve was deceived by the serpent. She was uh, not doing it knowingly. This was, Her sin was a sin of inadvertency, uh, a sin of... Uh, a, uh, uh, not a high-handed sin, uh, but uh, a sin of deception, wandering. Uh, but Adam's sin is a high-handed sin, and his response is a high-handed blame-shifting, high-handed scapegoating of his wife. The passage that, that's uh, 
uh, given for this uh, Sunday is also includes the first part of the, the Lord's response, the Lord's declaration of judgment. Uh, it's his declaration of judgment against the serpent, uh, that he would be cursed more than all cattle who go on his belly and eat dust. Human beings are made of dust, uh, and the serpent being in the dust and eating the dust is a man-eater. That's the picture of the serpent that we get in Revelation 12, uh, where John sees a vision of a woman in labor in heavens in the sky and a dragon waiting for her child to be born so that the dragon can consume the child. Uh, that's, a, I think, a portrait of the entire history of Israel, the entire history of humanity in the Old Covenant. Uh, Israel is the woman in labor. Her whole history is a birth story waiting to give birth to the child, and her whole history is, uh, 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 her whole labor is under the uh, watchful eye of the dragon who wants to devour her children. Um, that's the picture we get from the curse. It's a curse against the serpent, but it's also a danger to humanity being made of dust, that the serpent would eat the dust. Uh, verse 15 uh, is the Proto-Evangelion. It's the, uh, the first initial promise of the gospel that uh, the Lord would uh, put enmity between the serpent and the woman. There's going to be, uh, the woman is not going to take the side of the serpent, but there actually be conflict between them. That's a, that's a blessing that the woman is not uh, taken in by the serpent and not, uh, not seduced by the serpent. Uh, and then the, um, uh, the promise of the gospel, uh, the promise of a seed from the woman who will crush the head of the serpent's seed, uh, even as the seed of the woman is bruised on the heel. And this, is the, this initiates a, uh, a constant theme of uh, Scripture where uh, the enemies of God are um, destroyed by massive head trauma. Uh, head crushing and heel bruising are uh, regular themes throughout the rest of the throughout the rest of the Bible. Um, uh, John Barich, in uh, our recent uh, uh, intensive course on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, uh, pointed out the extraordinary number of head-crushing scenes that you get in the, uh, the book of Judges. Uh, that is a plug for that course. It's a great course. Uh, it'll be available in a few weeks. Um, make sure you uh, buy that and download it from our website. Uh, but there's a series of enemies of God that are uh, dealt head-crushing blows. David crushes the head of uh, Goliath with a stone and then beheads him. So you have that, that, that theme is uh, initiated here, and then you have a, a number of serp serpentine, satanic characters throughout the rest of the Bible who die by being crushed on the head. But the, the other part of it is the suffering of the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent is bruised on the head, crushed on the head, but the heel of the seed of the woman is bruised. That's a, uh, the suffering of the woman's seed is uh, the uh, correlate to the uh, crushing of the serpent's head. And so we, the, the suffering of the, uh, the triumphant Savior is a, uh, obviously a theme that's fulfilled in Jesus, but it's something that we find in the Old Testament regularly as uh, uh, various uh, uh, heroes suffer uh, on the way to victory. Uh, that's, that would be a way of linking up the Old Testament reading with 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4 is continuing Paul's defense of his ministry and the ministry of the apostles. He's accepting the Corinthian criticism that he constantly is suffering, he's constantly afflicted, he's constantly persecuted. Instead of taking that as a disqualification for apostolic ministry, Paul takes it as a qualification. He's the apostle of a suffering Christ, 
He's an apostle of the limping Christ, the Christ who has crushed the serpent's head and also bruised his heel. And so as an apostle of that Savior, it's not surprising that he's going to himself be crushed and bruised. Um, and the, that, that's what we looked at last time in uh, Paul's, uh, the, the remainder of uh, chapter 4 is filling out that uh, portrait of apostolic ministry uh, and more broadly that portrait of ministry in um, in the church, that portrait of pastoral ministry. The accent at the end of the chapter, though, is not so much on the suffering that uh, Paul and the other apostles undergo, but rather on the glory that they're going to receive. Um, verse 15, all things are for your sakes, that the grace which is spreading more and more to many people may cause the giving of things to bound to the glory of God. The outer man is decaying, the inner man is being renewed. He's suffering light and momentary afflictions, but that is producing an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So uh, he's, throughout throughout Second Corinthians, he's emphasizing the, um, the cruciform shape of apostolic ministry, but the cruciform shape of apostolic ministry leads to a, uh, a, glorious, a, a glorious future, just as it did for Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross uh, for the joy that's set before him. He goes to the cross because of the promise of future resurrection. And Paul engages in his apostolic ministry, uh, looking forward to the weight of glory that he'll share. Uh, the first verse of chapter 5 is part of the uh, reading for this week, Second uh, Corinthians 5.1. Uh, Paul is still talking about his uh, suffering in the inner man, or the outer man and the renewal of the inner man, he's talking about his light momentary afflictions, which are going to yield a weight of glory. But he turns to uh, use a different set of images at the beginning of chapter 5. Chapter 1, in, uh, verse 1 rather, introduces this, and he begins talking about the uh, suffering and the glory, that dynamic of suffering and glory in terms of two different kinds of housing. There's the earthly tent. That's the house that Paul is currently in. Um, once that's torn down in death, he'll receive a building from God, a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Um, there's currently, he's currently in a tent, a tabernacle, but there's a permanent building, a more glorious clothing, a more glorious building that's to come. You know, this conflation as the passage goes forward, this conflation of architectural and sartorial imagery. It's, it's a house. It's an article of clothing. What is it? It's a... Uh, the tabernacle that Paul is now wearing is going to yield to a permanent and glorious temple. So uh, Paul is following in the way of the the way of the suffering Messiah, the way of the seed of the woman who limps to victory. Uh, that's uh, uh, essential to his ministry as an apostle. Uh, the reading from Mark three, uh, the end of Mark three, verses twenty through thirty-five. This is a scene uh, of Jesus in a house. He comes home, we're told in verse 20. Uh, this is the house that he set up in Capernaum. Uh, throughout Mark, we have a contrast between uh, various houses of Israel, the synagogue, the temple, and the houses that Jesus occupies. There's a sharp contrast between the two. When Jesus first steps into a synagogue at the beginning of Mark, uh, it's infested with a demon. There's a demon-possessed man there. When he goes into the temple after his uh, entry into Jerusalem, uh, he finds that it is a um, den of thieves. There are, there's an infestation of demons, and he needs to cast out 
He needs to exorcise the temple as well as the synagogues. Uh, but then in contrast to that, you have Jesus entering various houses. Uh, and when he goes into a house, he sets up his own small temple and it becomes a place of healing and teaching and life instead of being uh, infested with demons. It's a place where uh, the Lord's power uh, in the spirit is manifest in healing and in the casting out of demons. So Jesus goes into a house, a, multitude's ga- a multitude gathers to him as they always do, and the crowding in at the entry of the house while Jesus is inside uh, speaking and healing. The uh, uh, This is a passage where the we learn of the charge that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. That's as if to say that Jesus' house is also a house of demons. Jesus uh, responds to that in a couple of ways. On the one hand, he kind of accepts the argument. So let's say, Jesus said, let's grant that I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan. Doesn't that mean that Satan's kingdom is divided? And if Satan's kingdom is divided, doesn't that mean it's doomed? So even if you're right and I'm casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, then the fact that I'm casting out demons at all is a sign that uh, Satan's kingdom is coming to an end. Uh, That's one response. The other response is to depict his work as a work of plundering. Satan is a strong man, but Jesus comes as the stronger man uh, to bind the strong man and then to plunder his house. This is taken as a... Uh, the tag for a, co- a commentary, the title for a commentary on Mark's gospel, uh, Binding the Strong Man. And it's a, it's, a, it's a major theme of Mark's gospel that Jesus is the stronger one who's come to bind up Satan, to defeat Satan, and then to take the riches from Satan's house. Uh, the riches, particularly uh, human riches, the people that Satan has enslaved. Uh, so Jesus' house is not a house of demons. Rather, it's a house where the Spirit is operative. Um, one of the interesting things about this scene is kind of the, the physical structure of it. Jesus is inside the house. There's a multitude gathered around him. So there's a, a, a crowd of people, apparently an impenetrable multitude. And then beyond that are other people that are actually members of Jesus' family. We learn that uh, his mother and his brothers come. Uh, they come concerned that Jesus has lost his mind and they want to rescue him, uh, but they're on the outside. And so we have this switch between um, the inside and the outside. Those who are inside the house and those who are outside. Jesus growing up, of course, is in the house with Mary and his brothers. But now that Jesus' ministry has begun, Mary and, his bro- and the brothers are outside. At this point, they're skeptical about Jesus' work. And those who are inside are the ones that Jesus, in fact, defines as his family. So when, when his mother and his brothers arrive, somebody comes to Jesus and tells him, your mother and brothers are looking for you. They're outside on the edges of the multitude, on the edges of the crowd. And Jesus answers by saying that uh, my mother and my brothers are the ones who do the will of God, um, who hear the word of God and keep it. So the ones who are inside the house, who are gathered around Jesus, who are accepting him, who are receiving his work as the work of the Spirit, they're the ones who are Uh, redefined as his family, and his natural family is now put uh, on the outside. Of course, that's not a permanent situation. This is a moment in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, We know that Mary is with the apostles on the day of Pentecost. We know that Mary doesn't continue to be skeptical. She's there at the cross. She's there uh, 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 with the church at Pentecost. 
Uh, we know that Jesus' brothers become uh, leaders of the church. The Lord's brother is uh, James, who is the leader, leader of the Jerusalem church. Uh, so this is, uh, this is not a permanent... Uh, the, the, uh, his natural mother and brothers are not permanently on the edges of the church. They become prominent members of the early church. But at this point in his ministry, we have the switch. And in order to become members of his family, they have to um, uh, change their perspective on... Uh, on his uh, on his ministry, they have to realize that he's not lost his senses, uh, and uh, they need to realize that he that he's uh, the he's the one who speaks for the Father, and uh, in order and then they'll be incorporated into Jesus' redefined family. Um, so this is a um, a uh, consistent theme of the Gospels, and Jesus is redefining. Uh, the family uh, of Israel and the families of Israel around himself. Your relationship, uh, relationships are not defined in terms of natural descent, uh, but rather in terms of relationship to Jesus. Your brothers are the ones who are brothers in the Lord. Uh, your mothers are the ones who are your mothers in the Lord. That might be your natural mother or brother, uh, but the key thing is the relationship to Jesus that they have and not their natural relationship. Um, this, Jesus is, polemicizes pretty regularly against the natural family and sees the natural family as a potential obstacle to the kingdom. Natural family ties are so strong, they can uh, uh, keep people away from, they can discourage people from following Jesus faithfully. Uh, and so Jesus has to target that natural bond and call us to join a new family and uh, become members of his household. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.